So we're going to go ahead and start with prayer, and then we will dive in. O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art ever present and fillest all things, treasure your blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, a good one. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So John Suits, who is supposed to teach this class, uh, most of his family is down for the count sick. So uh, I, this morning, learned that I had to pinch it. So, that's fine. It's like I've done this before or something. So, uh, the chapter that we had uh, is kind of, is a short chapter. Does everybody have a book? Not like necessarily here. Does anybody need a book? Okay. Has everybody read the chapter? Excellent. Uh, we have a copy. So, this... Uh, chapter is kind of a brief <coughs> catechism itself because this is introductory some of you may know a whole lot more about certain things than other things so there'll be a one class that might be to somebody's like this is really simple and then another class you're like I didn't know anything about this whatsoever and then somebody else is like well that was really simple I already knew that right because everybody in here is coming from very different backgrounds we have like an MDiv in here uh, which means basically the professional degree to be clergy, right? We have people who've been Christians their entire life. We have people who haven't, were kind of Christian in their childhood, but not. So when we are going through all of these things, uh, don't be afraid to ask questions because you never know who might want to learn something or don't know even what it is they don't know until somebody else asks. Because part of the challenge for me is I've been doing this for a while now or at least been Orthodox for 15 years. So a lot of things I just assume. I don't even know what you don't know. <laughs> so if you have a question, ask, right? So I wanted to provide a bridge from uh, last week, Veneration of the Saints, uh, why the Orthodox Church does this to uh, connect it to the history of the church. Uh, the Orthodox Church, if you see in our worship, very much reflects temple worship right? We have the three different spaces that you had in the Old Testament temple. This was given to Moses, basically revealed to him. This is how you're to build the temple. And you had uh, various, uh, how shall I say, zones of who could come close to God. Throughout the Old Testament, you have various visions or theophanies, revelations of God. You have the Theophany to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? You have later then visions given to prophets. One of the very key visions is the vision that is given to Isaiah from Isaiah 6. Are some of you familiar with this vision? Where, where, where is Isaiah in this vision? He's in the temple, right? And he is encountering God. And who is around God? The angels are around him. You also have the incense of the temple, right? The, the smoke. You can also go back to Sinai, right? You get lightning. You get smoke. You get God revealing himself. And Isaiah's response is, you know, I'm an unclean man. I'm unclean people. And he falls down on his face. This happens throughout the Bible, right? If it's not God himself revealing, then it's an angel revealing throughout the New, the New Testament. There's multiple times in those encounters with Jesus, the realization that God, what happens, fall down on the face, right? Like, I'm unclean. I'm unworthy. When you get to other visions of the prophets, but especially you can see this very clear in the book of Revelation, uh, which I know some people, like, that's one of those books that's like, <laughs> what do we do with this crazy thing? Uh, well, one of the most fruitful ways of reading the book of Revelation is to actually, that it is, what, what, when does John receive the Revelation? As he's in the liturgy. As he's in the liturgy. Because well, what day is it? The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, right? The Lord's Day for John, this is Sunday, and what happens? He sees God. If you go through the, what is the basic vision? He sees God. And what, what is God? What is he doing? He's enthroned, right? 
You have the lamb slaughtered before the foundations of the, of the world. You have before him, around him, who are around him? Cherubim. Cherub. So we have the angels again. We have some other folks present. We have the martyrs who are underneath the altar who are crying out, basically, <laughs> avenge us. <laughs> uh, then you have somebody else. There's another group who are falling down before the lamb enthroned. The elders. The elders. Uh, elders, for us in English language, we hear elder and we think, well, if you're Presbyterian, you think of elders in that way. But priest is just an anglicized form of presbyter, which is the Greek for elder, right? So a priest is a presbyter. If we're in the Greek church, you would say, I'm a presbyter. I would say I'm a presbyter anyways. But what I'm saying is, uh, so in the Greek church, for example, uh, you call the priest's wife, you call her presbytera because she's the priest's wife, right? So this vision of God enthroned in worship, because as you see, like our entire worship is going into the throne room of God. And who is in the throne room of God with us? The angels are with us. This is reflected in our hymnody, right? Let us lay aside all earthly cares uh, because we are imaging forth the angels because the angels are with us. But we're also surrounded by the elders and the martyrs, right? So Orthodox worship presumes coming into the presence of God is not just a lone affair. That's just you and yourself. And then I think this is really reflected in a lot of Protestant churches, not to pick on Protestant churches, because even Roman Catholic churches can be almost iconoclastic. <laughs> just strip bare, and it's just you and God. Like, And there's also a tendency, it also reflects itself have you noticed that you don't close your eyes as much in Orthodox worship? But if you're in a Western church, what do you do most of the time when you're praying? Close your eyes. You close your eyes, right? Because you're encountering God. It's you and God. And you're almost like everything else goes away. We do pray like that. Orthodox, it's not that we don't pray like that. When you're doing the Jesus prayer, private prayer, the fathers actually do kind of tell you to push your imagination to the side so that you can just focus on God. Uh, but there is, and from the very early in the church, there's always been an understanding that we worship together with those who have gone on before us. So because we worship with all of those who have gone on before us, uh, this is reflected in our worship literally with icons, right? And the church is very clear. We give only worship to God, but we venerate, we give honor, uh, which is especially hard for Americans, I think. Uh, because we don't really honor anything besides ourselves. Uh, in historic cultures, I remember a friend of mine uh, from Puerto Rico, when he would have to, wanted to go just like go play, he would go ask for a blessing from his grandfather to like bless him to go pray, uh, pray, play. So for an American, it was like, we have freedom, right? Me, whatever I decide. But that's not historically... We give honor, we venerate those who have gone on before us in the faith. And the church has chosen particular uh, people who have lived lives of sanctity. Uh, and this is why we call it, they're canonized. We know the fruit of their life. We've seen it. Uh, nobody gets canonized until after they passed. And typically the, the church doesn't canonize somebody very quickly because they want to make sure uh, the fruit of whatever this person's sanctity actually that there's real fruit and it's not just a sham right so uh what we have then for the church is because we all are before that throne and i would ask rita gregory to pray for me so i'm going to ask for saint maximus the confessor to pray for me I, because we're all present before the throne right jesus is not the god of just the living he's the god of the dead because they're not they're not they're they're alive right so our veneration for the saints is a way of uh, affirming God's creation, God's salvation, but also the fact that we're all in this together, that the body of Christ, and this is something that I think is difficult because of that kind of individualism that we're just soaked in, and it's even in a lot of churches. When you come into the Orthodox Church, we don't really think individualistically anymore. We think as a community and you're going to see this throughout the whole way that the church operates, which is part of the reason why there's an East and a West. Uh, the way that as a community uh, things work out on this side of the veil, I'll say, is reflected also on the other side. That there is all of us working together for salvation and we're going to ask for 
especially somebody that we know. Don't you, don't you already do this? If you know, if you were going to a church before, there is an older woman in that parish, you know this lady prays. Probably not that guy over there. But he's a, like, I'm sure he's fine. But like uh, the, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? There is an orthodoxy, a recognition that is holiness. One of the things I realized coming from kind of Protestant background to Orthodox is I kind of knew what holiness was, but then I started reading and encountering the saints of the church. And then I was like, okay, that's holiness. What I thought was holiness before was like a C minus. <laughs> it was like, went to church, said some prayers, didn't get into trouble, right? Well, you look at the saints of the church, it's not just went to church, didn't get in trouble, but like they stayed up all night to pray for people. Like, they gave everything they had away so that they could help people. They dedicated their lives. Now, does that mean for us to be saved that we have to do exactly the same thing? No, there's other examples of saints who lived married lives or lives in the world and they sought sanctification in those ways. They're going to look a little foolish to the world, right? They're going to, their time, the way they spend their time, what their priorities are, as we've seen, you know, reflected in the values of the kingdom, it's not going to be exactly the same okay so the church has always uh, existed with how should i say conciliarity that there is a leadership uh we've been studying titus for the um men's and access and women's and access and i encourage you if you're available you can learn because we're basically kind of doing this is Catechesis 101. We're kind of doing Catechesis 102 in some ways with the, the synaxis to be able to fill in uh, certain things because, like I said, this is kind of just introductory. We can only do like 30,000 foot uh, so that everyone can basically get an idea. You don't have to become scholars of the Orthodox Church, right? Mm -hmm. Yes? First, are you taking questions? Yes. Okay. Is synaxis just Bible study? Synaxis is Greek for just gathering together. Okay. It's not, uh, you know how it is. We're, we're trying to be cool, Matt. Right. <laughs> we're going to be the Synaxis Church next, and uh, Koinonia will be, you know. I'm just joking. It's a way to try to just name it so it's not just men's supper and Bible study. It's just men's Synaxis. I'm just going to call it that, women's Synaxis. I didn't even really think about it that much, <laughs> to be honest. So, the early church, if you see in the book of Acts, uh, and we see this reflected in like Titus, Titus is appointed by Paul to go and lay hands to set men as elders, priests, presbyters, throughout Crete. Why? Does anyone remember why in Titus? Because there's trouble, because there's false teachers, uh, and the false teachers are creating chaos. So, the church has always needed... Uh, Jesus didn't just come and just kind of hope. He, he put 12 together. Of course, we know one leaves and we add another. And then another with Paul as the 13th. But you get, uh, there's always been structure. Israel was structured, right? Moses led. When he needed some help, he got men together to be able to help him, right? So the church has always had some kind of structure. Uh, I'll say institutional, but form in, able, uh, in order to be able to carry out its message to just like families have structure, just like everything that lives has structure. So we see early on there's bishops, priests, and deacons. And you can see in the book of Acts, when you go to Acts chapter 15, because of course what happens very quickly, there's trouble, right? You get a group of people together, there's going to be friction, somebody's going to be saying something else, and then somebody else says, well, the apostles don't say that, and then, right? Or somebody's not being fed, and now there's animosity between the Jews and the Greeks because we haven't figured out how we're going to live together yet, right? That's earlier in Acts. You get to Acts 15, and you can see that there is basically James, the bishop of uh, Jerusalem, brings together elders, uh, and they basically, and other overseers, basically, which is another way of saying bishop, they come together because they need to decide things. And that process of deciding what it is, uh, if I'm, I'm having to recall this off the top of my head with being told this morning that I'm doing this class. So um, they have to decide about uh, whether or not you can eat animals sacrificed to idols. Uh, there also, there's an encouragement to maintain your chastity. 
uh, because around idol worship stuff, because, well, a lot of idol worship had <coughs> sexual stuff going on. Uh, and then three, or am I forgetting? I'm probably circumcision. circumcision, the most important thing, actually. Yes, that. Okay, thank you for the image. Uh, so what you get, what happens? How do they make the decision? So you have the leadership all comes together. What do they say? Do you all remember? I know this is pretty. It seems good to us. It seems good to us in the Holy Spirit, right? You have the church, church, church gather together. It's leadership. It's uh, teachers. Uh, it's shepherds. And they make decision. And then after they make that decision, what do they do? Say take it back to the church. They take it back to the church. They write a letter and they say, this is what we decided. This is what it, this is what it is. <laughs> this is the beginning of canon law. <laughs> this is the beginning of, uh, the pastoral, like this is already the pastoral epistles, which is reflecting like, this is how we're going to organize things. These are the kind of men that need to be in leadership. This is the way that husbands and wives should be. And then children also get added into this. Right? So as the church, progresses through history the first few centuries it's just uh nobody understands who they are and what they're doing so the romans think they're cannibals the romans think they're having late night rendezvous uh because they're coming together and it's secret because the christians were not telling other people what they were doing um this is why to this day uh when we uh talk about in those uh right before communion we say uh i will not um Oh my goodness, no. Speak of the mysteries for the I will not speak of thy mysteries to thine enemies. There is in this that the, the Eucharist itself was a guarded, uh, I'll say secret, but it was basically a guarded thing, like uh, married people's bedrooms, right? Like this is a guarded thing that nobody else is invited into this space and etc. So for the church, this is what uh, Holy Communion was. <laughs> And over time, martyrdoms, you have, and this is why we have to this day, all of these martyrdoms, like the, today with uh, Cyprian and Justina, is a very typical, like, second, third century story. A pagan priest, uh, demons, uh, somebody wanting to defile a woman. Uh, she says, no, because I'm a Christian. This is not how this is going to go. She defends herself. There's all sorts of chaos. But th this, in this case, instead of just... Uh, a bad death that's not a martyrdom for the pursuer, you get somebody who actually converts and then becomes a bishop and then converts all sorts of people around him uh, because of God's goodness and bringing him into the church. You have this continued, as time goes on, there's problems come up where the church gets together, where bishops in different areas are getting together, and we start calling this a synod, basically. And it is not just bishops, as in like uh, the CEO, the COO, and CFO get together and make a decision and tell everybody. But it would be everybody would involved, you know, the priests, deacons, even uh, certain lay uh, would be involved in these decisions. Ultimately, it was the bishops who made the decisions. But like any husband or father who's wise, he's, he's not just going to make fiat decisions on his own. Uh, he's going to seek counsel, right? Like... Honey, what do you think about this too? Because if you know you pull the trigger on your own, have fun. Uh, you learn very quickly. You need conciliar, just like in a church. Uh, Saint Anne's is structured like I am not the autocrat, right? I'm not the tyrant at the top who just makes decisions. I have a certain purview. I have particular responsibilities and duties that are laid upon me as a priest. But I can't just willy nilly go say we're going to go buy this property over here. Uh, we have to actually ask the parish and say, like, uh, uh, authorize the parish council to do this. So over time, uh, let's say, so what happens? I, I've just covered like second, third century. The book talks about uh, an important event that happens that changes all of this, this life of martyrdom. What, what, what comes? Who comes into the picture? Constantine, right? So I'm just going to say, I don't want to spend, because we could do a whole class just on Constantine. There's a lot of chitter-chatter out there about Constantine, how bad he is and how awful it is when the church uh, gets involved with Constantine. The Orthodox Church, he's Saint Constantine of the Church, so there's a, a different view of him in the Orthodox Church. Uh, but there is, he legalizes Christianity, and now uh, Christianity has, how shall I say this? 
and partly has social cachet, which is part of the development of the catechumenate taking a long time to actually filter and make sure that people understand what it is that they're getting themselves into. Uh, before you you were joining and you knew the possibility you're going to die, right? Now you're joining the church and it's the possibility that you might actually get elected to be something, right? Because you now have a base of Christians to vote for you or something. All sorts of reasons like that. But we have ecumenical councils, uh, which is where basically going all the way to back to Acts 15, when there's trouble, bishops come together and they sit and they debate, they argue. There are Arius, who I talked about in the sermon today, this is the first ecumenical council, he was just a priest. But because of his false teaching, they had to come together and basically say, you're creating chaos in the church, just like Titus needing to set elders in place, so that you can teach what's right, so that we can have unity of the church. So the Orthodox Church has governed itself historically over time. There's seven ecumenical councils, this is where ecumenical councils, when the bishops of the church gathered together in the first ecumenical council, you had bishops from Spain, you had bishops from Armenia, you had bishops coming from North Africa, you had bishops coming from the hinterlands, right? Uh, all coming together to be able to do this. Uh, the later ecumenical councils are very similar uh, in that way. I could go down into every ecumenical council, but we're trying to stay at 30,000 feet. What I'll say about the ecumenical councils is the basic thread as to why they get to ecumenical council level is it was perceived threats as to what the teaching of who Jesus Christ is. So is he truly God and fully man? If he's truly God, man, fully man, fully God, then what do we call Mary? Is she the Christ bearer or is she the God bearer? Did she actually give birth to God? And the church say she gave birth to God because otherwise what are we talking about who, who is Jesus then uh, then you get into all sorts of <coughs> other questions about how exactly we understand the fullness of uh, divinity and humanity dwelling in the one person of Jesus Christ even up to and you might scratch your head even to the seventh ecumenical council which is a defense of icons because the defense of icons uh, in its use in church the veneration of icons for John of Damascus Saint Theodore the Studite was basically, we affirm that Jesus Christ was fully man. We saw him. Do you remember 1 John uh, chapter 1, the epistle? What, what does it say? We saw him. We touched him. We beheld him as the Son of God. And so St. John and St. Theodore are saying, because God became flesh, we can depict him in an icon and venerate, uh, worship him, uh, because he actually became like us. So he can be depicted because he had a face. He had a name. He was a person. He wasn't impersonal force. <laughs> he wasn't just um, a man, but we understand him as God in the flesh. All right, I'm talking a thousand miles a minute because there's a whole lot of ground to cover. Does anyone have any questions about what I've said so far? I don't know how relevant it is, but why is Constantine um, disliked in many... Oh, there's many reasons for that. Uh, so I'll go with the, the probably the most... Uh, there's a lot of thought out there, and a lot of this comes from like Anabaptist thought, because part of the challenge of Anabaptists is when they, they came up, the thing that Lutherans and Catholics could agree upon, and Reformed too, is that killing Anabaptists was a great idea. <laughs> so Anabaptists had developed a very anti-state way of thinking about things and then when you get to America and you get Baptists who are almost basically Anabaptists and you have this kind of low church thing throughout the land low church is not the best way to describe it but uh, nobody likes Constantine because I go back and say everything was great and then Constantine came and the church became monarchical bishops which is not true that was before that St. Ignatius is 200 years at least before that uh, besides that you can tell there's already leadership of I mean what is Titus doing? You have one guy going around ordaining <coughs> priests uh, you have um, so there's also what's happening is the decoupling of Christianity uh, from state throughout the, like the past 200 years so who, who do you go back and say where did this begin and who created this problem? Constantine even though it really wasn't Constantine who it was, you should blame uh Justinian or um, what's the other name? 
Pretty. Theodosius. Uh, those would be actually Christian emperors. Constantine, he's a Christian, but he's like a deathbed conversion, and he gives a lot of money to churches. He, he stops killing people, uh, Christians. He legalizes Christianity so that it can have the same footing. Yes? Well, I, I hear the most is uh, why people don't like Constantine is because they think he only became Christian or allowed that to get like uh, clout in the... Which is kind of, it doesn't really make sense to me because Christianity was still, uh, it, it was a force, but it wasn't, once after Constantine, does Christianity actually come into its own uh, and really, I'll say, dominate, become the dominant thing. But Christianity uh, was never the only game in town. There was always stuff going on. Uh, paganism basically dies out because it couldn't compete with Christianity. And I mean, that sounds weird, but basically Christianity made a lot more sense. It was, and if you read, if you believe the lives of the saints, the saints actually did things and like the pagan, the gods were not powerful enough to overcome them. Uh, then you also just have uh, Christianity, it's focus on things. It wasn't carnal in the way of like, if you look at a lot of pagan stuff, it was just kind of like, you do whatever you want to do. And Christianity says, no, you have responsibilities. Like, do you know where hospitals come from? Christianity, St. Basil. Uh, he started the first, what we would call hospitals. During the plagues, and there's different plagues, I believe there's a major plague during Justinian's uh, reign, uh, all the pagans fled the cities, and the Christians actually stayed in the, in the cities to actually take care of people. So what happens? Christianity grows, because people see, like, they actually love and care about people. Uh, you can see this in Aristotle. You can see this in a lot of the pagan thought. Is basically, if you can't make it, sorry, Christianity came and just turned all that upside down. So, what were any other questions that you have about, let's say, the first millennia of the church? I know I'm kind of... Had any of you had much exposure to the Eastern Church? Because most people, if I sit, like, first, if I walk around like this, I can hear people talking, like, Panera, like, oh, I wonder what order he is. And I'm like, well, I'm not Roman Catholic. Uh, I'm married, too, so I couldn't be in an order. Uh, just a lot of people, I've even said, like, I'm Orthodox Christian before I was even ordained. And they're like, oh, you're Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not. I've even had somebody ask if I was a rabbi or something while I'm wearing this. I'm like, there's this Jesus cross, right? Um, what was y'all's exposure to Eastern Christianity? Almost zero. No. Almost zero? None. Did it, Like, you didn't even know it existed, right? It was Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, right? Orthodoxy is a... <coughs> May I bet if you saw it in a movie because if you now that you're Orthodox you're gonna start seeing things this is just how it is right like you you run you have an accident with a silver band and all of a sudden you see that silver band it's not that band but it's like now <laughs> everywhere that you see that thing right so Eastern Christianity as Frederica points out uh, was actually stronger bigger for like the first millennia than the Latin West. We becoming coming from a European Western European mind, we only assume Catholicism and Protestantism. And that's also typically theologically how we think, right? Protestant answer is this, roughly. <laughs> that's kind of hard because sometimes there's so many different types of Protestantism. And then the Roman Catholic answer is this. And these are the two poles. I can't help but yesterday I was around a lot of Lutherans. And I was like, wow, I'm back in the 16th century because they were really into the Reformation in a way that I'd never really been around that many Lutherans before. It just like everything was about, you know, salvation by faith alone, through Christ alone, through... And it was all just like these Lutheran slogans. I'm like, they really do talk like this all the time. Uh, I was struck by that. I had never really... I guess I'd never really spent that much time around Lutherans. But they're, they're still very much going on with the Reformation. Uh more power to them, I guess. Uh, orthodoxy, because it didn't have a reformation, uh, it didn't develop in the ways that, that the West says. For example, we don't have religious orders, so we didn't have religious orders fighting each other. We had our own fights, trust me. But 
it just developed in a different way. And in many ways, orthodoxy is still, you read about a saint from the 20th century, you read his life, the things that he says or that she says, the things that she does, and you go back to the 4th century and you read about those desert fathers, you're like, they're literally saying the same things. Uh, are we doing the same liturgy? Basically, we are, right? Are we still functioning the same way? Yeah, basically we are. We, we have bishops, we have a synod, which is basically all the bishops of a particular area gathering together and dealing with things pastorally, etc. So the Holy Synod of the Orthodox Church in America is going to meet here in a, a, few, a few weeks, and there will be things that come up that they have to deal with and talk about and make decisions about, like defra defrocking priests, making these suggestions, opening up this group to do research in this certain area to make a decision about some liturgical thing, etc. Right? Is there any questions about like the first millennia of, of the church that you've just wondered about? I know that's a big question. <laughs> so let's talk about why East and West split? This is a fraught and complicated question. It's kind of like trying to decide if somebody has to go, has suffered going through a divorce or something like that, and you're trying to figure out who did what and blah, blah, right? Like it gets really complicated really quick because it takes two to tango and two to like stop and things to blow up. Uh, I would like to call it like schism, uh, a divorce, it, it is tragic. So to me, and most of orthodoxy, uh, to look at the schism, you're going to have triumphant orthodox, like, the West walked away from the orthodox church. I basically think that is true because of the developments of what happened in the West with the papacy and the filioque. Uh, but it is tragic. It is not something to be, like, happy about. Uh, and you can see what basically happened if you kind of boil it down I think it's mostly about an understanding of conciliarity and how the church functions. That really at its heart, that is why the East and the West split up. And I think that's partly why the theological and things developed in some of the ways that they did because there was a split. Uh, in the early church, uh, as I talked about those d different bishops and they come together as synods, uh, there developed a, a pentarchy. Do you remember what Frederick was talking about with a pentarchy? Can you remember who was in the Pentarchy? Rome. Rome. Constantinople. Constantinople. Uh, Antioch. Antioch. Jerusalem. Nope. Nice try. You would think Jerusalem, but not Jerusalem. Alexandria. Alexandria. <clears throat> I messed up. It's Jerusalem. <laughs> but what happens? What happens with Jerusalem actually later is it gets absorbed into Antioch, and they are given later in the ecumenical council their own jurisdiction. So, uh, it is Jerusalem is a complicated situation because Jerusalem is also just like our Lord. Uh, what good can come out of Nazareth? Like most Romans, like what good could come out of that hinterland of Jerusalem? Jerusalem. Conceal your doors. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to leave it alone. Uh, but what you get, uh, because Jerusalem doesn't have, like Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome, these are major, this is like New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, right? For us. So Jerusalem would be like Knoxville. <laughs> in comparison to those big major cities. So what you get over time is all of them work together. Uh, they have their own synods and they fought with each other, right? Like they didn't just make decisions. Like there, there was issues. Uh, there was patriarchs uh, that were uh, defrocked. Uh, Nestorius was the patriarch of Constantinople, right? Uh, who is the, there's one pope that was also heretical. I can't remember his name. Francis. <laughs> no, I'm talking the first millennia. Yeah, um, I can't remember his name. Starts with an H. Um, Pope H. Honorius. Pope H. He was uh, basically a heretic. So there, there are situations in which what happens in the West, because there becomes a power vacuum. Part of this is 
what happens in the fifth century in the West? Who who arrives on the scene? The Goths. The Goths. And no, this isn't 80s, like, black. <laughs> like, they did wear black. <laughs> there's no painted fingernails or the cure or something. Uh, the Goths, the Visigoths, etc., basically come and uh, Rome is sacked. Everything is falling apart. You might have Augustine's City of God it talks about this, like, basically trying to figure out how could God let this happen? <laughs> Why is this happening? Because Rome, I mean, Rome is like, I don't know what this would be for us. Probably for Americans, like Washington D.C. or New York City is like, right? It is the city of the ancient world. There's a lot of other major cities, but Rome, especially the Mediterranean, right? This is the center of everything. So what happens? Guess who fills the void of the power? Papa, right? Because Pope just means Papa, right? Some ways I'm trying to demystify some of these things because Pope. Because we still we'll call the patriarch of Alexandria Pope uh, the Pope of Alexandria. We just mean he's Pop, right? Like he's father. Uh, so the Pope, you see this other Saint Gregory the Great, where he's having to be a mediator uh, because bishops basically, as their flock grew, they had responsibilities. Uh, and so what happens is the Pope gets not only ecclesiastical authority, but he also gets like social political authority. Well, we know. What, what do you think happens after a few hundreds of years of this? The Pope basically, and, and there is some right aspect of this. In his region, he was, uh, if there was trouble in a church or in an area, and there was trouble with a bishop, uh, for example, if I had issues with my bishop, I'd have to go to the Holy Synod and say, like, hey, my bishop is acting crazy or out of line or has sinned against me or is spouting heresy. So I take it to the Synod, right? Because they are his checks and balances. The church basically has kind of checks and balances here. So who does everybody have? The, who's the court of appeals for the West? The Latin speaking church? It's Rome. And the early church, if you read the ecumenical councils, and I think Rome is the first among equals for the early church. What starts to happen is Rome starts saying, I'm not first among equals. I'm first. And you have to listen to me. And the other patriarchs and churches go, we've never done this before. What are you talking about? Yes, you have a uh, right of authority to appeal, right? But you are not uh, over us. Because every bishop is canonically, technically, according to the ecumenical councils, they're all equal to each other. There might be a primate, somebody who, so for example, Father Stephen and I share, like, both are priests. We have full canonical abilities as priests to function as priests. He's retired, and I'm the rector, so here, I'm, I'll say primate, that makes it sound more <laughs> official, but, like, I'm the one in charge here. So, it's the same, uh, this isn't exactly the best way, but, like, the primate has uh, powers of respons uh, responsibility towards other churches and is kind of a leader, but he can't go to another diocese and tell them, you should do X, Y, and Z because I'm the primate, because I'm the Pope. In the East, that bishop would say, get out of my diocese. This is my diocese. If there's an issue, you bring me before the synod and we'll deal with this. So you can see already this, this shifting away for the Orthodox Church is like, you're actually leaving the ancient practice of the church. And Rome says, no, this is how it's always been, which is not actually true. So that exacerbates the filioque. So, the filioque, did you all read the section? Uh, can somebody tell me what the filioque is? You have to tell the whole creed in Latin. To, <laughs> Nick? That basically, that they were uh, making less of the Trinity by, inclu by inclu in the inclusion of Father and Son. So they're making less of the, the spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right, they're making less of the spirit. Yeah, they're implying a hierarchy and they didn't Correct. Like that. Yes, exactly. So there's all sorts of... So, so I... There's all sorts of debates about the filioque. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a... Um, speaking of Lutherans, who was a, grew up Lutheran, became Orthodox before uh, in his latter years. He was a great historian of Christian doctrine... He basically said, like, there's a special uh, layer, like, kind of referring to Dante, there's a special layer in hell for all of the treatises and folks that spent so much time writing about the filioque. Uh, who was this? Who did you say? Yaroslav Pelikan. Okay. Uh, with a K, not a C. 
if you look it up, you probably won't find him. You'll find pictures of pelicans. Uh, <laughs> but what you get with the filioque, more importantly, and I would say this is, it, it goes back to the papacy and that authority that was seen there. Where does the Constantinopolitan Creed come from? The one that we recite here in church. Nicaea. Right? But what, what was Nicaea? So that's a suburb of Constantinople. It's a council, right? It's an ecumenical council. All the bishops said, this is the, what the faith is. This is the perimeters. This is what true faith is, right? Building off of older baptismal creeds. The church has always had little creeds that they are like, this is a summation of what the faith is. Uh, so what's the problem with adding something to the creed? Is that a conciliar action? That's somebody on their own saying, I'm going to add this. There's all sorts of debates in the West as to why they did this, because they had particular, like, heretical things with some Arianism out there that they felt like they needed to, like, strengthen uh, who the Son is by adding the filioque, right? Because if you're saying the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, then you're lifting up the Son's status, right? And they said, like, but that's not how we've ever talked about it. Uh, there's, there's a debate here. So I'm trying to be... Because you won't find Orthodox who are like, the filioque, like, oh my gosh. But, like, they've actually not read, like, the last 500 years where there's been a lot of debate and a lot of discussion about this. Uh, and so the filioque is not as much theologically, depending on how you articulate it between East and West, as much as the fact that the West unilaterally added it to the creed. Which then the East just said, what are you doing? Like, this is, an like, this is the highest authority in the church, an ecumenical council. This is what it is. And you willy-nilly decided to add something. Yes. So they, by, de by definition, weren't being orthodox. <laughs> they were not being conciliar in the way the church has always been, which is how the orthodox would say, this is what the church has always been like. Conciliar. Right? So, yes. Early in the church, there were multiple creeds, multiple liturgies. A lot of these gatherings of the you know, bishops said, like, these are the good ones, let's stick to these around 1000 AD were there still multiple creeds like was it conceivable that there would be other creeds going on at this time? That's a, that is a great question not to my knowledge because okay. of the ecumenical councils. Okay. You're talking about the, like the first 300 years yeah, but yeah. once you get past that once the ecumenical councils happen and let's, let's give some time for the fallout sure. <laughs> the uh, accepting of that that is the creed. Okay. If you don't agree with the creed then you're outside the bounds of the church. Uh, and there was plenty of there. There were groups like we have this idea that like when Constantine and like then that's the church, and then you have like I had uh, someone in my family when I was becoming Orthodox. They're like, "Why would you do that?" Like I was like, "Well, because it's the historical church." And their response was like, "Yeah, but and this is a Protestant." And like, well, but there's always been faithful Christians outside of like the the like official church, and I'm like. Name some that you would actually want to have communion with, because almost all the ones that I can think of were heretical in ways that you wouldn't agree with, much less like pitting like Calvin and Luther, who wouldn't come to the table together, as far as I know. No, they definitely do disagree about the Eucharist, uh, besides other things. Uh, but if you go back, because there's this idea like there's basically Baptist, or for me it was Church of Christ, there's Church of Christ just somehow under the radar for 2,000 years. No one's ever heard of them before, but they're there somewhere in Gaul. No. Uh, those were, oh, who, is, who would be the great Gaul heretics the Dominicans fought with? Coming from the Balkans. Oh. What? The Waldensians? So, no Cathars. Uh, you also, like, Montanists, Donatists. You just start, there's all sorts of words, right? You actually, if you come to some of the Sundays where we have... Uh, commemoration of ecumenical council and you come to Vespers the night before, we'll literally sing lists of heresies <laughs> and, and heretics associated with that because we're saying these are incorrect versus the truth that, you know, uh, Jesus is fully God, fully man. He died. Like he didn't, it's not an appearance. It's not a smoke and mirrors. Uh, he is fully God, fully man, his soul, his will, like fully God, fully man, like all of this stuff. Um, so this division, East and West, it was already kind of happening, right? There was already friction because <laughs> it's kind of like a marriage. Like men didn't tend to think a certain way. Women are different, right? 
Remember that book? I remember growing up was on my parent shelf. Men are from Mars, women are for Venus, right? Like there's Latin speaking and then Greek speaking. They agreed on a whole, whole lot of stuff, but the things that they disagreed about, those are the things. And so, are you laughing? Not you, no. no. <laughs> Georgia just poked your head up. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, so, what happens is the East starts getting a lot of pressure because five, six hundreds, you start having Islam on the scene. And so now the East is falling, like Jerusalem falls, I forget exactly, it's like 6th, 7th century. Uh, and then Constantinople uh, has uh, them on the doorstep for a few hundred years, this like pushing and like constantly losing land. Uh, so like, how do we get out of this? Well, Rome, and this is, if you start noticing, Rome loves to do this. So the Council of Florence, it wasn't just the Greeks, it was also the Ethiopians, uh, other churches where they basically sign, if you will kiss the ring of the Pope and you submit, you can do whatever you want, as long as you submit and say, this is who the true leader of the Christian church is. This is basically, the idea was, if you submit to union with Rome, we will save you, we will start sending troops. Well, so you can see how for the Orthodox, okay, this is the only way we're going to survive. The emperor is in on this. Most of the bishops are like, yeah, we're going to do this. They go, everybody signs except Mark of Ephesus. And, and that doesn't mean that Mark was just like a blistering, like, Orthodoxy or death. Like, he actually was engaging, did a whole lot of theological debate uh, about things, purgatory being one of them, etc., saying we don't believe the same way that you do about these things. And he comes back, he never signed it. And basically, the, the people, when the bishops and the emperor come back, the people freak out. Like, you sold our birthright so that we could, like, get troops. The troops never come. Anyways, the, there's no council, there's no union that actually happens. And eventually, Constantinople falls 1453. Uh, the schism that happened in the, the East and the West, we kind of choose 1054 because that's when that excommunication mm -hmm. came. That's. That's a nice way to try to find something to pin it to. But it's kind of like a divorce or a separating of friends, right? Like, you might be able to say, like, it was this text message, <laughs> this voicemail, this action. But it's a whole lot of other things that are going on. Is there a whole lot of communication between Rome and Orthodoxy now? Yes, compared to 100 years ago or so. Do I see that going anywhere, really? Not really. For a host of reasons, probably beyond actually the purview of this class. But you can just tell the modern Roman Catholic Church and Orthodox Church are just still, there's this kind of difference. Like, Roman Catholicism is very much kind of a modern church now. Especially with Vatican II. Orthodoxy, this is what my seminary professor said, we're still like a medieval church or like an ancient <laughs> church. Our problems are very like what you would read about in the 10th century. Uh, I mean, even the stuff with Russia and Ukraine and all the stuff that got, like, that's very like medieval <laughs> problems. Uh, the Roman church has like a bureaucracy problem, <laughs> has a very modern like international corporation problem. The Orthodox church didn't get a CEO <laughs> right? So we didn't go that direction. Yes? Isn't the uh, ecumenical pa patriarch supposed to meet with Pope Francis and... Uh, yeah, there have been multiple visits. Patriarch Carrillo met with uh, Pope Francis in Cuba for a few years ago. If you know your history, you would know why they would meet in Cuba and why there's Cubans named Vladimir. Soviet Union. There's a Russian Orthodox Church in Cuba. There's one in uh, North, North Korea, too. Yeah, because there's Russians in North Korea. I don't know if it's actually manned by... It is. And I, I don't know how many Russians actually go. Because in North... Let this way off topic, but... <laughs> <laughs> Are there any uh, questions about... How much time do I have? Do I have any time? Ten, Ten minutes. So part of what I... And underlining all of this and talking about church so much is also... I'll say one practical thing. When, when you are coming in, you're coming from a Protestant and maybe even Roman Catholic because I've encountered a lot of disaffected Roman Catholics over the years. But 
in Protestantism, because of that individual, that nascent individualism, even if you don't want it and you had a strong church, etc., there is still, uh, you can distance yourself. And there, like if something, a, a Protestant church does something stupid in California, you're like, oh, that's just that church out in California, whatever, has nothing to do with me. For whatever reason, and maybe you want to count this, but it was something that was new when I became Orthodox. Let's talk about, like, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now. Like, I'm an Orthodox priest. Like, when I see religious rhetoric that's used in ways, I'm just like, what? That's, like, literally heretical. Patriarch Kirill said something the other day in a sermon that was just like, that's just straight up wrong. You feel responsible. Or like, in the 90s, we became Orthodox in the 90s. Uh, and you had all of the, the, I mean, the Balkan War, right? And you have Serbs, you have ultra-naturalist Serbs who are going to say, like, Orthodox, and they'll have icons and do, and you probably didn't even know what was going on. <laughs> but, and it's a complicated situation, just like Russia and Ukraine is super complicated. That's not exonerating Russia or Serbia from whatever they did in those situations, because it's also individuals doing stuff. Because the Senate of Serbia even specifically said, stop, <laughs> we're praying for peace, put down your, like, stop acting like this. But you, in becoming a part of Orthodox, you become connected to everybody's Orthodox in a way that, as a Protestant, you can just kind of like, eh. <laughs> that's their problem. But in Orthodox, you're like you feel like you're now related via the cup to the body, because in Orthodoxy we have uh, a strong, very much higher view of the church, like. I'm not a Protestant pastor. I'm a priest, and there's a difference. Like, I have a spiritual authority that's different than a pastor. Uh, giving penances or hearing confessions is already, like, we're talking about a different ball game than somebody who talks for an hour or maybe does some, like, counseling, and that is part of priesthood too, but it's a different thing. Uh, the conciliar aspect of the church, the uh, obedience and reverence to, like, a bishop is different. Uh, do you know of Protestant churches that function like that? I don't really know. That's part of the reason why they're Protestant. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a protest. Yeah, it's a, there, there, there's a protest. And sometime, at some point, you decide I'm not going to protest anymore because I don't know what we're protesting for. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems like a lot of modern protests. Like, I'm here to protest because I want to protest. I don't know what, but I'm here. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> so, what you... What you can see, especially, I think, in the uh, coming into the church, there is a, a new layer of responsibilities and realities that are just different than what you'd be used to. And it takes time to get used to it. Yeah. Kind of along that line, um, I remember reading about the distinction between like a dogma and an opinion. Like uh -huh. the church has certain opinions about things, but like dogma, like the Nicene right. Creed, is always right. essential. So, um, can you just talk about a little bit about so thelagumena and dogma? Thelagumena is the more like Greek way of saying like opinions. Okay. Uh, so, I'll give an example just from what I was talking about, like the Philadelphia. That is one of those like ways, there's different ways to articulate the Trinity if you follow certain uh, fathers. Because Basil and Gregory, the way they articulate the Trinity is very similar, but it is also different in, little, in particular ways. Uh, so there are ways, uh, and these are basically kind of metaphors or ways of trying to describe something that are not enshrined as dogma, but they're like thelagumina. Uh, this can also get to, let me try to think of some other. So, for example, right now, there is a debate in orthodoxy about what exactly primacy is in the church. Uh, what exactly is ecumenical patriarch? What is his authority? Because he is like the court of appeals. But what does that mean? Uh, because most of orthodoxy for the past 800 years was under... Uh, either the Ottoman Turks or Soviet Union for communism. So freedom for orthodoxy in the past 500 years is a new what a new experience. So there's been a lot of debate exactly how to exercise uh, the relationship between the churches in a period of freedom <laughs> when you don't have the KGB breathing down your neck or trying to control things. Or the Turks, who are basically saying, you can't do that. 
So, for example, when the Greek Revolution happened and mainland Greece broke away from the Ottoman Empire, they hung the ecumenical patriarch because the ecumenical patriarch was seen as the leader of the Greek people. So, there are other things you could say, Thelagumina, which are basically, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I try not to spend too much time with Thelagumina, to be honest, Mark. <laughs> well, I mean... Partly because of my time, like just what I have to focus on. Well, I guess uh, maybe in the other direction, then, like what the, the dogma is like the Nicene Creed. Is that pretty much dogma, or is there? Oh, no, that is dogma. But yeah, but I yeah. mean, but are there other things that are considered dogma? So, some people will make massive distinctions and say like the Nicene Creed is the only thing that's like dogma, mm -hmm. and make this huge. But part of the thing with dogma, dogma itself is just teaching, right? So the Orthodox Church. Uh, would say what is enshrined in uh, not just like the creed but in the, the decisions of the ecumenical councils, the canons of the church uh, the liturgical life of the church, the hymns of the church the teachings of particular fathers uh, especially like the, the three hierarchs like Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, John Chrysostom these are like tried and true this is the teaching of the church uh, can I give you like a, a book, a bound book that says this is the teaching of the church like that? It doesn't really work like that. It doesn't even really work like that in Catholicism either because you have the catechism and you say, here's the teaching of the church. You're going to have like 15 people raise their hand and say, yeah, but this theologian says such and such. So there's a base. So part of what I'm getting at, for your sake, the basic teachings of the church, the creed, what is sung in the liturgy, the basic teachings of the fathers, those are things that are that you need to pay attention to and are authoritative. If you're going to start pushing into particular articulation of things, uh, that's where discernment needs to come in. Which is true for any like anything that says this is an authoritative thing, and then there's like three debates about how exactly does that work. This is very, it sounds very esoteric because we're not talking about something specific. Because right off the top of my head, right now, I can't think of something, so I apologize. But oh, thank you for the answer. If I come up with something, I'll try to remember to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? So, next week, are you doing next week? I'm doing the week after, doing chapter six. So, what is, ne is next week, Terry? I believe so. Okay. So next week will be chapter five, A Sacrifice of Praise, uh, which looks like it's going to talk about baptism and other things in regards to worship. All right. Does anyone have any other broader questions outside of this class today? I just have a kind of a random question because you mentioned Russia and Ukraine. How do you feel about when they put the Jesus on the battle flags? I don't like it. But it depends on what exactly we're talking about. Where do they put Jesus on a battle flag? You know that Jesus, yeah, with the, it, the it's like in uh, the the head of Jesus on many mm -hmm. the Mandelian, yeah. Yeah, they put it on the on the battle flag of tanks, and uh, so part of the challenge with uh, certain historic Orthodox places <coughs> is you'll get kind of like how we have here, like the Order of such and such. You'll have like the Order of Saint George. You'll have the Order of because these are warriors in their life and so they become like gifted a rank or order of such and such uh you had uh you're familiar with the the battleship potemkin the one that was like the famous uh soviet issue uh, bolshevik revolution stuff uh you know what its name was before that it was pantalaemon because it was saint <laughs> pantalaemon uh, it just reflects a very different like they weren't didn't have a secularized world and so part of the challenge in Russia right now is they had severe secular communistic and so they're trying to refine themselves and part of the challenge for a place like Russia versus somewhere like America uh, orthodoxy is like in their literal DNA and roots like going really far back their, like their, their identity as being Russian for many is tied up with orthodoxy in a way that Americans because of the Protestantism, we don't really have the same association with those things. So it's we we struggle with more abstract forms of the same thing, I would say. 
Right, like, and, and they might view us as like the uh, the opposite. Like I know for a fact that uh, <laughs> yeah, they're especially if, having hung out with Serbs uh, who really don't like the Clintons. Uh, because they bombed them, and they even American bombs said Happy Easter, and we're bombing them on Pascha, because it didn't mean anything to us because their Pascha is different timing. But they still wrote on it. So uh, everybody lives in a glass house. Everybody has issues and challenges. The church calls us to repentance, no matter where we are at. Uh, and historically, the the Byzantine Church. Uh, if there was war, they had war, they had to f defend themselves against uh, Persians, uh, Arabs coming from the peninsula, right? Uh, they would, if you went and you sp killed somebody, there was a penance that was attached, that there was a, a time where you stepped away from the chalice because you've shed blood. So you're not welcome to commune. That doesn't mean you didn't get pastoral care. That doesn't mean that you weren't cared for, but it was just a reality, like a realization, you've shed blood, you need... Basically, they were saying, you have PTSD, and you need some time to heal, right? And so part of that is being brought back into the fullness of communion with God is going to be something that's going to be monitored and made sure that everything's okay, right? So it's seen as restorative and healing, and uh, it's a, just a different way of, it's, this is not the way it should be, but we have to in order to survive. Does that make sense? Yeah. On that, let's end on that happy note. <laughs> Lord, now let us, thou thy servant, depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen the salvation which thou shalt prepare before the face of all people. Light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.